you're listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome. We're, we're still back. We're still here. We are hopefully going to be doing regular episodes. Uh, I'm Rich. I've got Henry with me. Hello, Rich. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. We've just come back from having a rather large lunch with your wife and another of our friends. And uh, now we've we've tucked away to, to do another recording. Yes, yes. And another mighty fine one, may I add, because you've chosen a band who I really hadn't thought about for a very long time, who I guess got squirreled away into our musical archives until you mentioned you were going to do them. And on further inspection, they have quite the back catalogue. So who are you choosing? I have picked Counting Crows and This Desert Life, although it was an absolute coin flip between that and August and everything after. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love I love both albums. Uh, but yes, this was actually triggered by someone else. So okay. my brother, Phil, was telling a story on our family WhatsApp about how he used to play Mrs. Potter's Lullaby to my niece when she was very little and how they both used to always ask for it at bedtime. So my niece and my nephew... Uh, and apparently it's got to the point where it's an almost Pavlovian response. So he was telling me he put it on the car once and Henry asked him, why are you putting that music on, Daddy? And he didn't answer until the end of the song, by which time they were both asleep. And he's like, that's why. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> so he's trained them to basically fall asleep to that bit of music, which is hilarious. Are you suggesting that Counting Crows are sleepy and boring? No, I'm suggesting they are melodic and wonderful. <laughs> just, just checking. <laughs> careful so so tell us about the band first yeah so counting crows is an american rock band from barclay california they were formed in 1991 and they consist of jim bogios on drums david bryson on guitar adam duritz on lead vocals charlie gillingham on keyboards david Immergluck on guitar millard powers on bass and dan vickery which is quite the impressive stage presence when you see them live it's a lot of them and apparently the name counting crows comes from it's from the rhyme you know one for sorrow two for joy and duritz apparently heard the rhyme in the film signs of life which starred one of his friends uh, mary louise parker and just decided that it was a good name for a for a band fair enough yeah and in terms of sound they are 70s american folk rock like van morrison it's all those kind of classic americana coastal sounds and they've never tried to hide that they they wear their influences very very openly on their sleeves and i don't think they've ever worried about people accusing them of being unoriginal because of it it's almost as though they've they put that that flag in the ground so early on and that's just who they are that no one really questions them i think they're known as an americana band that's just what they do and people do accuse them of being you know, unoriginal and not doing anything new. And I actually don't think it's unfair. I think the thing is that they do it with such passion and enthusiasm and sheer joy that I think that totally makes up for, you know, anything on that. I perfectly happily listen to this, stick it on on a beautiful summery day. Wonderful thing to like. It's a good driving album. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the fact that you mentioned it, then I played the album again, and you kind of realise there's a they're very good songs. He's a he's a good songwriter, and yes, you can you can put on any one of those albums or Hard Candy, which we haven't mentioned yet, and yep. um, they're all they've all got some really really good songs floating around on them. And Recovering Satellites, which is yes. their second album, which I think is massively underrated. But 
yeah you talk about his songwriting so his lyricism i love the way he walks this line between direct and abstract and really paints a picture with the lyrics that he uses during songs so he's very poetic but telling stories that are grounded in real situations and real people i think that's a really it's quite a tricky thing to do without coming across as either twee or a bit schmaltzy yeah that's fair the other thing is in terms of the songwriting itself so he writes a lot of the music or at least germinates the ideas so he talks about it saying a lot of times i write stuff and i teach it to the band and never play it again i hear guitar in my head i write on piano and i write for guitar a lot of the time it's not meant to be played the way i originally played it i'm always trying to get it off the piano and onto a guitar not every song a long December is meant for piano, but Mr. Jones was a prime example of one that was always supposed to be on guitar. So as soon as I could get it off my piano and onto someone else's playing, I never played it again. Huh. So he's always writing with the other instruments in mind in terms of what he wants the central instrument of a song to be. Which is really clever to be able to do that. So I was reading up about Juritz and he said in an article in Men's Health that he suffers from condition which i've not heard of before called dissociative disorder which i don't know about but it it sounds like um i think in his words he says it makes the world seem like it's not real and as if things aren't taking place so i I don't know whether that kind of abstract brain of his means that telling stories about people as you said is something that's kind of almost easier because everything is associated so it's easier just to pick a a person and a story and tell it because you're not in the present if that makes sense yeah it, it does and i've read that in other interviews as well where he talks about situations and people becoming shiny and almost filmic from his point of view yeah. and so he then it becomes easy to tell a story like you say so yeah it's it's weird i do know some i've got a friend who has um dissociating mm-hmm. episodes and it's it's for some people it can be a defense mechanism so it's like something they did as a kid and they've just held on to that so they put in stressful situations or high anxiety moments they'll dissociate from the situation and almost be an onlooker looking from the outside in yeah which i guess in a weird dark way is great for music writing true yeah so how did you bump into counting crows so i am actually not 100 percent sure where they came from so i've already mentioned my brother loves their music my sister does as well hey becky and so someone of our of our sibling group would have brought that music into the house at some point i suspect it's probably phil yeah because he's the oldest of the three of us so you know we're talking mid to late 90s he would have had more money ways to get hold of albums all that kind of stuff and so i think he was probably the one that brought them in but we we all love them um you're a fan as well right where, where did you come across them i was on the backpacker trail in 2000 and every single backpacker hostel bar coach everywhere had counting crows playing everywhere without question every backpacker who had a guitar strapped to his back could play half the songs <laughs> and it was kind of one of the anthems of the trip and slightly annoying at the same time. So it's kind of, <laughs> and because it wasn't the kind of music that I normally listen to, because it was quite, I don't know, I felt at the time it was a bit middle of the road. I would kind of frown against it. And then you'd hear Mrs. Potter's Lullaby or Mr. Jones or Amy Hit the Atmosphere being played 
in a bar and you're like you think oh this is actually really nice oh but it's counting grows burn <laughs> and i had this big internal um kind of confusion but yeah it was in 2000 and i just for six months of traveling it's right. what everyone from the the israelis to the dutch to the french to the canadians the americans the english everyone was listening to it yeah that's fair i think when i've gone traveling there's always counting crows or someone similar who will be in the mix in terms of music at hostels and things like that so yeah that's a good shout so you didn't hear them when they were sort of releasing stuff in the 90s i guess that was your loud fuzzy era of music so they were around and i had friends that were huge fans and I like I like their music, but it wasn't. I never bought a Counting Crow CD, though I did when I returned from backpacking. They released their best of, which came uh, out. Um, okay, they did it in something like um, I think it was early two thousands, probably about two thousand three. Films about ghosts, and that's you know you want to find a a best of, which really genuinely is a brilliant best of. That album kind of has a lot on, so yeah. worth a look if if you're going that way yeah and there's definitely a lot of brilliant standout tracks on every album so it's not a bad place to start there's an element of you'll miss out on some of the little lesser known tracks that are just gems um but certainly a good place to start exploring their music should we dive in well i was going to say yeah um i've I've mentioned the best of but we're not here to talk about that (laughs) um we're here to talk about this desert life this desert life which starts with hanging around, which is all one word. And I don't know why it's all one word. I didn't manage to find that out. But I love the opening for this. The fact that it's someone sort of yelling incoherently over percussion just is, it's charmingly symbolic. It's a funny way to start an album because it, it kind of stumbles into a song and you think, hang on a second. Yeah. It, it doesn't quite, you know, some artists will do a grand opening and some will have a kind of drum beat to kick everything off. But this is a bit of a bit of yeah, yeah, it's and a bit some weird. drums. But yeah. But then when it does kick off, it's a brilliant track. The electric guitars and the bass on this are wonderful, and they set the stall out for that kind of classic positive upbeat version of Counting Crows. Because I do think there's almost two different versions of the band. There's the upbeat positive, dance happy, family gathering party track, Counting Crows. And then there's the introspective, sad relationship ending version of them that that's more not morose but certainly more thoughtful and quieter yeah and it's got a kind of weird looping to it i read that it's got these eight different loops on hanging around Um, and he recorded in a bit in the same way that you know brian wilson we talked about his smile project where it wasn't individual songs so much as sounds and bringing it together and it sounds like the band thought let's try and get influenced by that and bring these piano loops in nice and kind of squish that into the song at the same time so it's yeah it's quite a cool way of cool way of working yeah i love the end of the track as well so that piano part that sort of gleefully goes off track it's like and just like (laughs) the audience clapping in the background and then that then drops into possibly one of my favorite counting crows tracks of all of their back catalogue which is mrs potter's alibi yes well what a cracking song um it's it's not a short song it is um, not a short song it's what it's over seven minutes yeah 740 uh, something like that i think yeah uh it's it's a lovely it's not really a lullaby is it no it's it's not a lullaby at all <laughs> um what's what's the background of the song do you know much about it yeah so 
first off, I want to talk about how musically this is gorgeous. And I love how whimsical the lyrics are in it. But it also has gravity to it. There's this sort of bigger underlying thinking about life thing that he seems to be doing here. And there's couplets at the start that I absolutely love. Well, I woke up in mid-afternoon because that's when it all hurts the most. I dream I never know anyone at the party and I'm always the host. Just this really interesting idea of feeling totally overwhelmed and baffled in a like a big situation where you're like, uh, w- what the hell's going on? And everyone's expecting you to know. Yeah. And there's also, well, I am an idiot walking a tightrope of fortune and fame. I am an acrobat swinging trapezes through circles of flame, which sort of refers back to this idea of him struggling with the level of fame that Counting Crows brought them. So they wrote the first album, which is August and Everything After, expecting it to be this, you know, early indie band, no one really knows who the hell you are, and they just exploded them onto the scene. And he really struggled with that level of of fame. Yeah. And I think he's another one that, I mean, we mentioned this in the last episode with Kurt Cobain and the imposter syndrome. He feels like another one that never quite feels comfortable with that level of people knowing their stuff yeah. and feeling like oh it's, it's good but is it really that good yeah i'm smiling because i've just looked up the backstory to this song <laughs> right it's great this is incredible yeah it turns out it was written about the actress monica potter hence mrs potter yeah. who he'd seen performing in Cornell or patch adams he doesn't seem to remember depending on which interview you read i, I know exactly now who you're singing about i looked at because I've, I've seen Cornell and she's right the the blonde in that right and so it's this idea of falling in love with a character or maybe an actress that you've never met based purely on seeing them on the silver screen i can totally relate to this so for example you've watched palm springs because i bugged you to watch palm springs very good Kristen miliotti or sarah in that film is amazing and i sort of fell in love with the character and and this and you recognize that it's only an idea of a character and a human being but at the same time it's something that everyone has gone through and can relate to and so he wrote this whole song about the feeling of how do you reconcile that with real life yep so there's the section well i don't know you and you're probably not what you seem but i'd sure like to find out so why don't you climb down off that movie screen turns out when they were recording this song literally at the point where they were about to start the recording session, one of his mates was like, I'm downtown having lunch with Mrs. Potter. Yeah. And he was like, what? He's yeah. like, would you want to come down and join us for lunch? He's like, it's so weird. We're just setting up to record Mrs. Potter's lullaby. I can be there in an hour, comes yeah. down and meets them. And then obviously she's interested in this singer she's never met from a band that she likes who's writing a song about, about her. her. Yeah. And he says, it's a song about an imaginary version of you. The song is about what happens when you fall in love with people who don't exist, like a person on a movie screen. She seems a bit baffled, but flattered, and asks if she can come back to the studio to experience it being recorded. And of course, he says yes, because why would you not in that situation? It turns out that once they've recorded and done the mastering and tried to make the thing work, he doesn't like it. So it gets shelved and maybe isn't going to go on the album at all. And then a few weeks later, it turns out they've started hanging out. And I don't know whether there's a romantic thing or just friendship, but there's nothing in the interview to suggest one way or the other. But he's at her house and she asks about it and he says, oh, it's shit. Uh, And she's like, no, it's not. 
he's like what do you mean she's like well i've been listening to it every day and yeah. he's like what what the hell do you mean by that turns out their producer gave her a tape as a memento yeah. of one of the takes and take number four i think it is yeah. and she plays it back to him and he's like oh it is good yeah. and that's the version that ends up on the album it's amazing That's awesome i i did not know that story and i just assumed mrs potter was a just a fictional right. made-up thing but suddenly if it's the the lady in Connor and there's a backstory to it like that fantastic right and and he talks about the fact when you're making anything creative you get the raw ingredients and then you mess around with them and you mess around with them, you mess around with them and you can end up getting too far away from the original thing you were aiming for yeah and this really brought it home to him that actually sometimes you've captured magic in a bottle you should just just keep that don't fuck with it well it's it's like the classic thing like with painters and the art of painting is knowing when to stop and that's the thing that you all fucked up a painting is when you just keep adding paint until you've just done too much and then you've ruined it well from a photography perspective i can completely understand this as well because i'll take photos and i'll look at them on the camera with my model with my creative teams whoever i'm working with and show them and we're all like oh my god these are great photos we're really happy with what we're doing here this is working out for what we wanted and then i get them up on my computer screen like you know a day later or a week later and start doing editing i'm like this is all shit i'm shit I don't know what I'm doing. Why the fuck am I doing this stuff? And then you have, I learned that I have to step away from that in that moment, completely stop what I'm doing and then come back to it at a later date when I'm like, oh no, this this is good. I yeah. was, I, I did know what I was doing, but you can get very stuck in that negative creative mindset. And it happens to a lot of people. I think it probably happens to most creatives at certain points in time. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, it's beautiful and it's gorgeous and it, can make me entirely happily tearful if that makes sense yeah and it's followed by amy hit the atmosphere which is one of my favorites and it's it's quite a wistful song and so good and it's very it's quite evocative in a very gentle way and if you're in a kind of nice quiet space and you're chilled out this is a, a wonderful song to listen to and again it's the same in terms of what you're doing from a mood and vibe perspective as what we talked about with Nevermind last time out true which is two massive songs and then something quiet just to bring everything back down and, and balance the album and it does that really well and it's also the way it's recorded is quite simple you've got clean drums clean piano and and it all just comes together in a really nice sonic way well you mentioned the drums one of the things I love is that the drumming is beautiful but it's subtle and it sets the pace. It sort of sets the mood without ever being in your face. It's sort of in the background, but it brings everything together. Yeah, it's just like that kind of gentle snare that just ticks away in the background and keeps pace. It's lovely. And again, some of the lyricism here. So today was just a day fading into another and that can't be what a life is for. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Powerful stuff. <laughs> Genuinely powerful stuff. And done in the wrong way would sound very glib, but it doesn't yes uh actually in fact the lyrics all the way through this anytime it rains she just feels a lot better and it's like that yeah. just kind of that, yeah it's very it's very good do you are you aware of the story behind this one no so amy was a real person is a real person it's not okay. entirely clear again i went through some interviews and 
stories seem to have evolved, changed, mixed up over time. So the Amy in question was a heroin addict and potentially a girlfriend, sometime girlfriend of Duritz. There's no clear answer as to what happened, but the internet claims both that Duritz has said that she died, committed suicide, or that she got clean. And I think he has told different stories to different audiences over the years. And so no one's really entirely sure what the actual story is. And I went digging for interviews and information online and there's nothing that I can find that's a definitive what's behind the story other than the fact that she was a drug addict that he knew back in the day. Right. Wow. Well, you can kind of tell that it's got that depth that makes you think there's more to it than just a made-up character. We need to talk about Colorblind, talking about quiet tracks. This is one of the songs which... One of the first songs I I learnt on a guitar. Really? Um, And it's actually really easy to play on a guitar, but it Hmm. sounds really good. So... For those amateur guitarists out there, go and, go and find the tab. It's dead easy. You just It's variations on pretty simple chords. Good to know. Playing. Well, this was one of the songs that fired them to fame. So it was used on the Cruel Intentions soundtrack, which Cruel Intentions isn't a film that gets talked about much these days, but back when it got released, it was Massive. huge. Yeah, it was definitely a kind of, if you're in your teens, it was the thing and you talked about yeah. it and it was, a, it was a big deal. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous and it's sad. The strings in here are lovely. It's another one with a good story. I don't know any of these. And in fact, you're talking about these guys and in the background, I'm sitting here kind of jumping around Wikipedia looking for stuff. There isn't much on the Wikipedia page. Really? So you've clearly um, gone into another level of, of, of detail. So so go on. What's the, what's, the, what's the detail? This one's from a Stereo Gum interview. Okay. Durowitz says, that one in particular, I think Roger Kumble, who was the director of the film, came to me and asked if I would come watch the movie and that they needed a song for this one scene i made them show me the movie and i was like oh this is weird i wrote a song last night that i think is perfect for the movie we're in the middle of making this desert life so we were in the studio at the time and i came home after work i wrote the song colorblind we hadn't even recorded it yet i don't know if i'd even played it for the band but i went to see the movie the next day or the day after that it was literally within hours of finishing the song because i didn't even have a demo recording I went to the living room of the house we were making the record in and I literally recorded it in one take. After recording, I had the cassette in a boombox and when the scene started, I pressed play and I was like, oh yeah, this is perfect. I called them back up and was like, yep, I've got the song for you. Just come take a look at this. Right. How good is that? Like this coincidental thing again of you've literally just written a song and then someone's like, we need a song. You're like, how about this? I just wrote it yesterday. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It's incredible. Yeah. Like, it would be impressive if it was just they came and asked me for a song, I watched the thing, I went away, and I wrote Colorblind. That would have been a cool story, but to have just written Colorblind already is is mad. Yeah, and I think that that's the one of the big songs on the album for me. I think the it's one of the high points. Yeah, the, the piano on this is just stunning. It's just such beautiful work, and it's there's so much feeling in the playing of the piano in this. Yes, and I, I mentioned earlier guitar. I still mean that it is it's one of those weird songs which is sounds beautiful on a piano but it actually is transcribed easily onto a guitar and often that doesn't happen if you're trying to play a guitar song on a piano or vice versa it's a bit fiddly but this one switches nicely I can imagine it being great on like an acoustic because you play acoustic guitar I tended to play electric when I was still playing regularly but yeah I could absolutely see that I want to jump to Speedway yeah So I hadn't realised until I focused in on the tracks that I wanted to highlight for this album how much sadness there is on it. Because this is another 
sad, slow, wistful song. Well, I think most Americana heads in that direction. I think there's kind of that the failed American dream is seems to be where you can get a, there's a rich vein of uh, of good stuff in there, and that's where they're they're heading with this. Yeah, I, I do you think that it's quite a cathartic sadness that it has though? It's not a, it's yeah. not going to bring you down if you are sad. It will help you work through some of that feeling, or it certainly does for me. Yeah, I love the the lyrics. I'm thinking about breaking myself. I'm thinking about getting back home. I think I've been waiting for way too long. I'm thinking about getting out. Just. We all know that feeling. Yeah. I don't know this song actually that well. I I don't know the album that well because I know later albums and obviously from the best of, but... um, but yeah, it is it is one that I've I recognise. One of the things I do love about this album, and I think the thing that allows the sadness to breathe and to work is that it starts and ends happy. So you've got the two very upbeat things to start with, and then two very upbeat things to finish, which is St. Robinson and his Cadillac Dream and Kid Things. So there always seems to be that hope in the tracks. And St. Robinson's fun. Uh, and Kid Things has them dicking around at the start where they're obviously like messing around in the studio space before really getting running. And they've just got they've just got the tapes recording in the background. Yeah. Um, and then they just break into the song from that. And it's just it's fun. You can hear a band that are just just enjoying what they're doing. Yeah. And they definitely feel like a band is like they're a proper yeah. tight band. The way that they play, well, they record and live and the way they do their music, you can tell that the directions that they go in, they're all kind of in it together. It's not like it's not like when we talked about Radiohead and there's one frontman going off on one, and the other band like running up trying to catch up. They're all yeah. they all know what they're they're doing here. Yeah, I think I think that's true, and I like the fact that this. I mean, just to finish, I wouldn't be surprised if Kid Things was just a, a complete one take live recording because it's just this unashamedly old school blues track, and. It's not complex, but it's just got lots of joy and happiness in it. And I love that. Yeah, I agree. We should jump back to August and Everything After because I was so close to picking that instead. Well, this is the... When when you said you were going to do Counting Crows, the, the, the first thing I would do is go through that back catalogue and try and work out my favourite. <laughs> and, and I, like you, just bounce between albums on this one. Found it really difficult to choose an album which really reflects what they do. Yeah. But this is an interesting one on here because obviously you've got Round Here and Mr. Jones, which are both brilliant tracks. And everyone thinks it's Mr. Jones that got them famous, but Duritz reckons it's actually Round Here because he said, honestly, it wasn't even really Mr. Jones that broke the band. That's just what everyone remembers because Mr. Jones has been on the radio for a while and we weren't even in the top 200. No one was buying the records. No one was coming to see us play. We were opening for some good bands, but we played Round Here on Saturday Night Live. That blew the band up. Then we played round here again on Letterman. Those things blew the band up. It's just once we were huge later on over the years, Mr. Jones was easier to play on the radio stations. And I think it's one that people remember. And that is fair because I can imagine that American radio stations are probably much happier to play a track about a charming man picking up women in bars than a track that has lines like, she parks her car outside my house and takes her clothes off. She says she's close to understanding Jesus. Yeah, It's not quite as radio friendly. It, it isn't. Um, but yeah, brilliant songs, both of them. I mean, Mr. Jones obviously is that classic and yeah, back on my bloody backpacker bus where people are just looping it around. It's like, okay, I'm getting a bit, bit bored of this, but it's a brilliant song. It's a great song. And it's, it's another one with a great story. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. I do not know the Mr. Jones story. So 
Durrit says, I know how I wrote the song. Marty, who was our bass player in my band, Marty Jones, Mr. Jones. His father was one of the few Americans who have ever had a successful career as a flamenco guitar player in Spain. He plays as David Server in Madrid, okay. and he'd come back to America to visit for a few months and was doing some shows with his old flamenco troupe. So we went over to San Francisco to the mission, and we went to the show, and afterwards we were out drinking with the flamenco troupe. We ended up at a bar one point late that night, and in the corner of the bar was Chris Isaacs drummer, Kenny Dale Johnson. At that point, Chris Isaacs' band was the hottest rockabilly band in the city, and he was sitting in the corner with three girls. I remember just talking about it with Marty saying, man, we've got to get our shit together and become rock stars. We couldn't even talk to girls. I remember I went home that night and wrote the song. Awesome. Mr. Jones strikes up a conversation with a redhead. That's amazing. And that's Mr. Jones, one of the guys in the band. Fantastic. Yeah, it's great. And it begins, we've got a mention of this album. Oh, lovely song. I was going to call that out. Yeah, it sits on the darker side of his repertoire, but it is a really, really lovely song. The Rain King is another brilliant upbeat one the ranking's very radio friendly isn't it whereas Anna yeah. Begins is a little bit less so and a murder of one which obviously refers to crows again yep that finishes the album really well I love the electronic hum intro that bursts into life and it's another one that's special to me because of how it was used in scrubs so there's a scrubs episode called my porcelain god JD's envious of Michael J Fox's character is revealed late on that he's got this real issue with OCD that all appears to be part of how he's become successful as a doctor and then it turns out that you know he has issues where it just destroys certain aspects of his life yeah and, it, and it's just perfectly used in that episode it's so good uh, but the lines casting shadows on the winter sky as you stood there counting crows one for sorrow two for joy three for girls four for boys five for silver six for gold seven for a secret never to be told and obviously it's all part of their debut album but it's winding in that counting crows thing into everything else that they do well if you've got a good theme then stick with it yeah so we need to touch on recovering satellites which as i mentioned i think is <laughs> massively underrated yeah, yeah, yeah and that is all about the struggles that duritz had coming to terms with the fame that they had from their first album it's darker it's difficult in places not musically but more just the atmosphere of of the album itself and so i think that's probably it's not cheery enough and people expect cheery from counting crows yeah well shall i call out the big song on there yeah go for it um well in, in my mind it's a long december yes which is kind of right well penultimate song on the album and um oh man every time i get to december this is a song that kind of pops into my head and you know when it's gloomy and dark it's uh but i think that track has more hope than a lot of the rest of the album so yes. it's got the line long december and there's reason to believe maybe this year will be better than the last yep which is you know a lot of this album isn't that hopeful you've got stuff like have you seen me lately which has lines like these days i feel like i'm fading away like sometimes when i hear myself on the radio and again that's that's a real struggle i can understand like people are like oh complaining about being famous but i can imagine it being really oppressive absolutely you hear it a lot from celebrities about the the price of fame and um you know they can't all be wrong i've got one more from here that i love which is angels of the silences oh yeah which good is shout. a sneaky belter yeah that's also on their best of yeah people forget that they can rock out a bit it's it's still measured rocking out but it's um <laughs> right 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 it's not it's not <laughs> it's not heavy metal or anything like that but it's 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 rock uh and recovering the satellites the actual track as well i think that's it's sad but it's tinged with hope 
yeah this idea of losing yourself and then getting back to your roots yeah so you've mentioned hard candy a couple of times already and i think that's an album that i know less well i know i know it i've listened to it a bunch but it's probably one that i'm less likely to to jump to i know there's the cover of yellow taxi on there yeah and it's not up to the standard of the previous albums but it's got good songs i mean there's good radio pop with american girls which is right is catchy and then if you want a ballad um holiday in spain is a cracker and it's the thing that they do very well they can do a nice wistful ballad when you're watching a sunset (laughs) and you've got this on in the background and it's lovely but yeah hard candies um i think it sold very well i think it was was received well but it's um it's not as good as as the others i think that i think the cover of the big of big yellow taxi which is on there got huge amounts of criticism um <laughs> so lots of articles said it was the worst song ever written wow enemy said it was in their their worst songs of the 2000s ultimate classic rock said it was in their terrible classic rock cover series and the trouble is when you go and try and cover a song like big yellow taxi unless you do it really well and i think they didn't i think they screwed it up and there's this horrible backing singer do what thing in the background which is awful <laughs> so i'm with them on this i think it's rubbish but if you don't listen to Hard Candy because it's got this song on, you're missing out on a couple of good tracks. Yeah, I I remember the criticism at the time. I don't know that I hated it. I felt like it was a bit overblown. I don't think it's particularly... It's definitely not a great cover, but it also felt like people were being... I don't know, almost felt like they wanted to just have a pop at Counting Crows and that was a good piece of ammunition to do it over. Yeah, there's a... The, the Village Voice, who are a, um, uh, it's American news and culture paper, commented that they paved Nirvana and put up a counting crow and um, had a... Brutal. <laughs> yeah, absolute take that. <laughs> what a line. Yeah, but it's it's that classic thing that gets thrown at bands like Counting Crows of, because you are nice, you're not worth my time. And I just don't think that's true. I think they have absolutely have a place. And I, I do think they make brilliant, wonderful music other than, you know, the odd bit here and there. And I just, I get annoyed with this idea that if you're not doing something aggressive, edgy, new, different, then you're not doing anything worthwhile. I just don't think that's true. Like music is there to inspire and entertain and keep us company. And sometimes you just want... Something easy going to keep you company. Yeah, agree. I do think they were a huge part of getting me into like big, lush American rock music. Yes. I don't know that I'd listened to a lot of that style before they appeared in my life. And I've certainly wandered off into that musical world many times over the years. So they're, they're definitely part of that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think my um, I had an Eagles phase um a massive nice. eagles phase um but you know they're the best-selling band of all time so whatever but i had that off the back of counting crows it was it was the other way around whereas a lot of people right. who are eagles fans may have treated counting crows as a kind of maybe substandard eagles replacement <laughs> i would be amazed if eagles aren't part of duritz's uh inspirational set of bands i know uh, they're a bunch of 
a bunch of things that are listed on various interviews and Wikipedia and all that kind of stuff. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're in there. Yeah, and actually, to be honest, we will probably have to talk about Eagles at some point just because, um, yeah, I'm going to do it. You can bring that to the party. I'm fine with that. I don't, I should know Eagles stuff better than I do. I just, I need a jumping off point. And if you do them as as an episode soon then then that'll help because i'll use yeah. that as a jumping off i will point. enthuse about the eagles and Good. we'll lose listeners left right and center <laughs> oh no i mean we've already <laughs> lost a load of them because we took a break yeah. so it doesn't really <laughs> matter enough. anymore does it we'll True. talk about whatever the hell we want exactly cool so what about live i've seen them a few times okay i think the most memorable one though was i saw them uh, to look up which year this was but it turns out it was 2002 i saw yeah. them at the academy in bristol yeah and we arrived i don't know half an hour 45 minutes after the doors had opened because we're like you don't want to get there too early you want to get there like as the support starting maybe a little bit after the support started if you're not in any particular hurry they were just coming on stage whoa okay <laughs> they played a good two and a half hours and just did hit after hit after hit i looked up the set list and it's 21 tracks including two encores was was it because there was just no support or no they had a support on but he apparently came on 15 minutes after the doors opened and played a half hour set right but they played two and a half hours in total it was absolutely it was wonderful uh it's where i first heard and fell in love with jackson c frank's blues run the game if you, oh that's a brilliant cover yeah his version's great their cover was amazing simon and garfunkel do a cover of it as well which i found once i got home from the gig i thought the simon and garfunkel one was the original and Turns so that's not because i thought the same because yeah i found it out because i had one of the simon and garfunkel albums where it was on and then yep. loved that and then had the counting crows version and and i realized it was the cover Firstly, was really happy that Counting Crows had actually covered it well. Yeah, because they do it. <laughs> yeah, after my being rude about Big Yellow Taxi, they covered this song really, really yep. well. And it's an acoustic version, isn't it? It's only a live version that they've ever done, I think. Yep. And there's a recording from one of, I think it's one of the San Francisco gigs that is released as a live album, and then they, I presume, pulled that into best ofs. Uh, it's a wonderful piece of music and i'm going to include all three versions on the playlist because i love all of them and i have no shame when it comes to that kind of thing yeah have you seen them live yeah once at glastonbury <laughs> mid-afternoon 90 like percent of where have you seen this yeah, band yeah glastonbury um, 97 this was in i think it was 2000 and it was the classic sun slowly going down golden Ooh. light kind of drifting across somerset fields everyone just sitting like and wonderful i mean there were thousands of people there but instead of all going up to the front people had gone backwards to lie on the hill and just and you just sit there and let, let all this drift over you if people don't know glastonbury you've never been or you've not really watched it on tv or you've not seen it properly on tv the pyramid stage has there's like a relatively flat space that's probably, oh, I don't know, like a couple hundred meters back to the sound desk. And then from the back of the sound desk, it slowly turns into this massive amphitheater. But it is an absolutely enormous amphitheater. So yeah. you can be oh, well, probably half a mile away from the stage and still be able to see the stage as long as you've not got a six foot eight giant in front of you. 
good yeah i mean it's almost more than half a mile you yeah. can go a long way back i remember watching um from almost leaving the site watching bowie i had to leave halfway through a bowie set <laughs> jesus got um, it but you could still hear him and see everything and you all you saw was this little tiny pyramid down in the valley with all these lights it was beautiful to see but um yeah big space and i imagine that went down really well at that time of the day it's perfect yeah one yeah. of those ideal sets yeah and you you wouldn't want to see them in late in the evening when it's kind of busy it's much better just in a kind of summer atmosphere like that i do think they suit big open festival space and more intimate gig venue very well i think their their music they're not one of those bands where you need to see them in a small grungy space or in a massive arena for it to work they can sort of they're a bit chameleon yeah from that perspective yeah, that's true that is fair yeah yeah good so and any more live performances that you've seen that um you away? I, i've seen them a couple of times at festivals but i think the that particular set at the academy was just just amazing just because you, you don't turn up and expect to see a band that you absolutely love play two and a half hours unless it's um springsteen because you know then you're sort of like all right wrap out mate it's been six hours yeah but yeah i just wasn't expecting it and they just played all the hits so it, it was just wonderful yeah brilliant yeah, nice well i'm very glad you you brought them along because when we've started writing down our whole list of albums that we would be keen on this never appeared on any of my lists at all and even when you said you'd do counting crows i thought mm, okay but as soon as you listen to the albums actually they're really really good songs so yeah i think they are one of those bands that people don't think of as being anything more than just background but for me they are i just their music's just wonderful i i think a lot of people feel about them the way i feel about matchbox 20 where i'm like yeah they're nice but i just sort of take it and leave it and i suspect i might be being harsh on matchbox 20 oh. there but i do know people that are absolutely massive fans matchbox 20 i i will we'll just go there briefly because we're not going to do a podcast on them i don't think <laughs> but they were one of my favorite bands just before university a fr- american friend of mine came really? over and i bought that um think it's yourself or someone like you i think it's the album a couple sure. of albums like a <laughs> everclear and a couple of other american i'd recognize albums, but... i'd recognize the album cover but i would no idea on the name but anyway back to counting crows great choice and people should know them but if they don't it's a lovely one for a for a summer's day Whack yeah on. absolutely cool all right well thanks you lot for joining us again <laughs> we will be back soon cheers cheers thank you for listening to another episode of i might be wrong 